Okay, we are recording. So hello everybody and welcome again to another interview. I'm Sheena Williams with Krav Maga Salem and the Art of Badass. I am joined today by Anne Levenstein, uh, based out of Illinois. Uh, she's got a background in nearly 20 years as law enforcement. She's a, a self-defense school owner and operator. Um, with a tremendous background, and I'm really excited to highlight her. So without further ado, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, it's going to be a good day. So let's jump right on into it. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I started my law enforcement career when I was 21. Actually figured out it was what I wanted to do when I was 18. I did a ride along with a very cool female officer, and I just thought she was the ultimate badass and by the way she was a black belt in I want to say karate I know it was some martial art but anyways she was like my instant hero my shiro if you will um, I was going to a four-year college at the time but that ride long which was just supposed to be a side project it was like a midterm project for a criminal justice elective that changed my whole world like the very next day I transferred out of uh, the four-year college into a two-year uh, police science program, which also had like a built-in academy. So got hired on the same department that she was on actually when I was 21 and uh, spent the next 17 years there um, just doing a variety of things, mostly patrol. But the last eight years, I was also a sexual assault first responder, which basically just meant that if a sexual assault either occurred or was a delayed report while I was working, I would be the go-to person. So if I was doing something else, you know, directing traffic or patrol or whatever else, I'd be called in off the road to handle this sexual assault complaint. Yeah, excellent. And, and uh, just having a similar background, uh, I'm sure that kept you very busy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure, you know, the days were full but busy and, and, and it was fulfilling work for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, so let's chat real quick about your time as a police officer. Um, you know, in other sites and other conversations we've had, uh, you've been sharing some of your fun stories that are unique and, and different. Um, I think uh, a lot of, especially female officers, have experienced some of the same type of behaviors and attitudes. But uh, you have a you have a knack for being really good at the standard operating procedures. I understand. What do you mean? <laughs> knowing them, knowing them inside oh, and oh, out. policy and procedure. Yes, yes. 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 Well, you know, <laughs> my uh, mentor on the department was um, a street legend. Let's shall we say? And you, you, you can't be a good police officer without getting into trouble. That was what he taught me. He said, you know, you really, if you're gonna, you know, kick down doors and go out there and set the world on fire you're going to make some mistakes. And, and that's just reality. The only way to never get in trouble with admin is to basically like just sit in your car all day, take your calls. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. And uh, that was never really my style. And, and you know, I am recording Adam. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, oh, the, his pacifiers are on the table at the top of the stairs. Okay. Hopefully you can make that out. Um, where was I? So, like the saying goes, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to crack some eggs. And uh, I like to joke that I know every policy in the manual of the Kenosha Police Department because they've broken all of them. So I know them all by heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my sergeant used to say to me is, you're not really an officer unless you've had a SOP or standard operating procedure written about something you've done. That's so funny. I was told you're not a real cop until you earn your first suspension day. 
which I hear 70 of them. So I guess I'm like way up there. I totally leveled up. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's turn this just a little bit and let's talk about the being a sexual assault reporter and some of the things that you kind of experienced because of your background, because of your knowledge and all the future training that you then gained. Um, what similarities did you find within some of the, the victims or things that you can provide to us that may help people not be in that position? Sure. Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to share that. Well, the, the commonality, the common thread that I really found between the women that I interviewed, and by interviewed, I mean these were the victims, the women who were coming into the station to report a delayed assault or were calling from the hospital or, you know, maybe they went to the hospital and the nurses called, whatever the case may be. When I'm interviewing the victims, um, I got the sense that they all... I hope I don't catch flack for this. I hope it doesn't sound like victim blaming or shaming, but I found that they typically did not have what I would describe as a healthy sense of self-esteem. Um, they did not have a, a, a good foundation of self-confidence. And very often, as I would be taking their statement, basically their written account of what happened, they would dictate it to me and I would put it into writing. You know, I go through the statement when I was done. Okay, first you did this, he did that, then this happened, then that happened. I would not find any uh, instance where they had at any point said, no, I don't want this, or physically fought back. And I, I would say to them, there's, there's nothing I can charge here. that I can't build a case on this. You may not have wanted this encounter to happen in, in your heart and your mind, but by going through the motions... There, there's nothing, there, there's no crime here, unfortunately. And the conclusion that I came to is that they either didn't know that they even had the right to say no, or that, um, that they really, almost like they, and this is going to sound crazy, but almost sort of this wanting of the approval of the abuser, if that makes sense. Um, like, they didn't want what was happening, but they also didn't want the uh, assailant to be mad at them. Very often it was like, um, I, I don't know, I think it's like 70 or 80% of sexual assaults are committed by someone known to the uh, victim. It might even be 90%. It's some staggering number. Yep. Very frequently it was like a date rape situation or an acquaintance situation. You know, oh, I thought we were just friends and then this happened. Um, so long story short, the the ultimate conclusion that I came to was that self-defense, which to me is really about self-preservation, really begins with the mindset. It, believes with, it begins with the mindset that you are worth being defended, that you have the right to set boundaries because an assailant does not respect boundaries, right? If he did respect boundaries, he wouldn't be assaulting you. Um, and, and just knowing that you, know, you, you, you deserve to not be touched or in any way, in a way that you don't want to happen. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And I think, I think you're, you've got some great points on that. I think, you know, a, a lot of the time what we see is kind of almost a grooming uh, approach in some of these situations mm -hmm. where, um, you know, maybe it is an acquaintance or somebody who's known to us who starts pushing boundaries 
um, you know, making somebody uncomfortable and then continuing that process where it's small at first and then another small step and another small step yes, to the point totally. that now at that point in time, it's very hard to say no where I'm uncomfortable because yes, there's some momentum going. It's right. sort of like, you know, I, I always think of, um, you know, San Francisco is very hilly, right? Mm -hmm. And if you've ever driven there, you're driving on these hills. So the, the, the mental image for me that comes to mind is if there's a car at the top of a hill and you nudge the car a little bit and then you want it to stop, you can just kind of step out in front of it. But if you try to do that at the bottom of the hill, you're just going to get flattened. Yep. And by the time the assault is occurring, the car is at the bottom of the hill. It's just snowballing and there's stopping that momentum would be extremely difficult in my oh, opinion. Oh, absolutely. To, you have to nip it in the bud. You even have to get it before it even starts by having that foundation of a healthy mindset and, you know, sovereignty over your own body and agency and autonomy and all of those good things. Yeah. Sometimes women just don't have, whether they were raised in a home where that wasn't a thing or whatever the case may be. Um, I, another commonality that I picked up on was a lot of these women would be saying, I can't believe this is happening again. This is the second time I've been, you know, date raped or sexually assaulted, or, you know, I was sexually abused as a kid. I can't believe what is wrong with me. Why is this happening? Why am I an adult still experiencing the same thing? And it's, it's because we are the common denominator in all of our own experiences. And that doesn't mean that we're bad or we deserve it, but we, the, these, um, there's always going to be abusers, con men, perpetrators, bad guys out there. And they're very sensitive. They have a radar for who will be an easy target and who will be a soft target. So, I mean, who will be a soft target, who will be a hard target. So be a hard target. I mean, that's the first thing we teach in our self-defense classes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, and I know you guys do this as well is empowering the word. No, that it's okay. Right. To say that word, because some people really struggle just simply to say no. Um, oh, yeah. And one of the first things I try and assign my students is find somewhere to say no. Right. Do you do you want extra cream in your coffee? No. And to feel good about whatever that is That's and great. starting to practice that early. That. Yeah. Start small. Start with baby steps in anything in life, including saying no. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is it is empowering to be able to know that that is that's the threshold and if i say no and you continue forward then i know your intentions are no good and that's a boundary that's i mean that's the red flag is somebody who cannot hear the word no oh absolutely absolutely that's a huge red flag speaking of red flag let's talk a little bit more about red flags <laughs> yeah so um well are you talking about red flags in like dating because a lot of abuse happens within intimate relationships or are you talking about like stranger assault let's start off with uh, more intimate relationships because even though we tend to think that we're going to be attacked by the big bad boogeyman at two three mm -hmm. o'clock in the morning uh, a lot of assaults Very come from rare. those people who are known to us and that's the bigger right. thing oh, and unfortunately it's not something commonly shown or marketed in self-defense programs which is unfortunate because that's the reality and it's so intellectually intelligent to try and scare women uh, with that 3, 3 a.m. bad guy, because even if they have all the skills in the world, just like we talked about, uh, you know, I mean, if it's somebody who's known to them, that known person has probably crossed boundary after boundary after boundary, mm -hmm. and, and mentally they're, they're already cuffed because, you know, again, there's, there's all sorts of social contracts that go with it. So, yes. I did remember the statistics now. 
50% of sexual assaults occur within an intimate relationship. So that's already an established relationship, a husband, a living boyfriend, a committed relationship. 40% are an acquaintance and 10% are strangers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So within intimate relationships, um, and I totally agree with you, by the way, and I, I always like to define physical self-defense the way we teach it. So we teach self-defense uh, from the standpoint of the police officer in the academy. I know that your gym is uh, definitely more of a structured martial arts training program. It's an art form. It's a sport, all these things, um, as well as, you know, applicable self-defense practical um, but our, ours is very, 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 very basic. It's for the average woman. It's for everyone. You don't need to commit. You do need to practice the techniques for muscle memory and all those things. But yeah, in terms of um, an intimate relationship, um, I mean, really the, the first thing to understand is that all forms of violence, which um, there's a, the National Violence Prevention Institute has identified nine types and only one of those types is physical, although if you count sexual, I guess it would be two types, but there's emotional, verbal, spiritual, uh, psychological, financial, there's legal abuse. Um, I know that sounds crazy, like what type of abuse would be legal, but it's, it's that, uh, that is referring to when husband and wife get divorced, they have kids in common, and the abuser, I'm, I, I use male, female pronouns from a statistical standpoint, usually it is the male who is the abuser, so I apologize if I offend anyone, know that these terms can go both ways. But again, statistically, it's something like 91% of physical assaults are committed by males. So I'm just going with that. Don't hate me. Um, but so the husband may keep the wife tied up in court filing, you know, frivolous motion after motion after motion. And maybe he doesn't win, maybe he does, but now she's spending money to defend herself. And Maybe she's having anxiety because of it, which, by the way, is something within our own control. Nobody can ever cause you to have anxiety, even though it feels like it. That is a choice. Um, that's probably a whole other episode. But, okay, so back to your original question, red flags. Um, all forms of violence are about control. The abuser is trying to control the victim in some way, and it does start small. He's trying to control your time, what you wear, who you talk to, or maybe it's even, and it, it, I should say, not maybe, it will be subtle in the beginning. Uh, maybe you don't answer his phone call and you can detect sort of a note of, I don't know, neediness or suspicion in his voice as to why you didn't answer the phone or, you know, probing questions that are really none of his business or even something as simple as, um, I've a technique I suggest to women who are dating, whether they're young women, kind of entering the adult dating scene for the first time, or maybe divorced and re-entering re the dating scene, is when a guy asks you out on a date, um, it's really important to, and I always recommend lunch, by the way. Um, evening has an implied quality of intimacy. There's a question about where the evening is gonna end up. I always say, do lunch, keep it short and sweet, and have a definite end point. If he's a good guy and he's truly interested, that's, that's gonna be okay with him. Yeah, he'll right? get it. Right. So if a guy says to you, you know, hey, I'd love to see you. Can I take you out sometime? Um, you know, how about tomorrow? Even if you're available tomorrow, I want you to say, you know, I, tomorrow doesn't work for me. How about Thursday? Okay. Um, I, that might sound like a game, but it's for you, it's a way of gathering information as to whether or not he is amenable to that. And maybe Thursday doesn't work for him. So maybe you go on Friday. I don't really know, but you don't quite given that easily. And maybe it sounds silly, but I'm, I'm going to expound upon this. 
So the next thing that's important to realize is um, you choose the location for the first date. A guy saying, oh, you know, baby, I want to surprise you. That may be appropriate for a committed relationship six months in. For a first date, that's not appropriate. You want to think of yourself as the CEO of your own life. And you're, this is a screening process. I mean, ad adopt a really business-like clinical approach. And this is a screening process. And the manager doesn't let the interviewee choose the date and time and location. No, you do. Women are just better wired to be the managers of a relationship. Men are not good at this. Do not give that to him. Men are, have many wonderful skills and abilities. Managing a relationship is not one of them. So this is a way for you to learn pieces of information about the guy as to whether, you know, is his interest genuine and is he willing to be flexible for you? I mean, that's, that's like a really good quality to have in a business partner slash relationship partner. Um, so if he can't uh, do that, well, maybe he's not worth your time. And if not, that's okay. Next, there's a thousand other fish out there in the sea. No attachment. Oh, absolutely. Engaging that response is such a key. I mean, yes. this is where a lot of people who have been in abusive relationships will tell you, you know, I knew something was funny even on our first date because, and you're oh, not- Oh, I just heard this thing yesterday. Get this. Okay. People who are divorced, and by the way, most divorces occur due to an imbalance of power in the relationship, which again, comes back to control. When, when, when asked, so, so divorcees, when asked, at what point in the relationship did you know you were going to get divorced? 90% of them say, what do you think, what do you think I'm going to say? First date. Before they were married. Before <laughs> the marriage, they knew that this relationship would end in divorce. Doomed. And, and I can share with you on a personal level, I, I'm divorced, remarried, but divorced, obviously. And I knew on the first date that this probably was not going to be a great fit. And I, you know, there was other things, you know, he checked certain boxes and I saw what I wanted to see. And I sort of pushed my emotion to this or my intuition to the side, which many of us do. Um, I'm definitely not unique in that regard, but I saw it in his eyes the first time we sat down at the table across from each other. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people, as, I mean, as the statistics would tell you, right, is that people, people recognize that early and then push aside that intuition, um, which is a dangerous precedent to set. I mean, that intuition is there for a reason. Gavin De Becker talks a lot about that intuition being internal uh, red flags in our brain that see things on a more uh, basic level than sometimes our social brain sees it. And so it's important to listen to those red flags. Even if we can't articulate it well, it's at least worth diving into why, why did that person make me uncomfortable? Why, why am I feeling these ways? And spend some time within those emotions to really study them. The word intuition comes from the root word enter, which means to guard or to protect. So I like to think of our intuition as our guardian angel or our internal police officer, because the police are not going to be there at the time of an attack. We're great at showing up after the fact and collecting evidence and taking statements and interviewing witnesses, but we will not be there waiting in the bushes when uh, a critical incident unfolds. Um, you, you really have to rely on your internal resources. And uh, another fantastic book about intuition that I think every person, every woman should read is called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, the sub, it's called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And um, the first chapter is about 
there is a museum that's looking for this particular type of Greek statue, ancient Greek statue. And this guy comes forward and he says, I've got one, you know, $10 million, you can have it. So of course they send all these scientists to review it and determine its authenticity. And, um, you know, they're going down the list and yes, you know, this matches in the age of the calcite and all these things. But when the, uh, the experts come in, not the scientists, but like, I don't know, the curators or whatever they're called, I don't know the exact word, they get this feeling of revulsion and they can't explain it. They just say, oh, you've already bought it. It was the Smithsonian. Oh gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. And they're like, oh my God, what are you talking about? It passed all these tests. Well, more, more testing revealed ultimately that it was a fake, but they wanted to believe so badly that the statue was real. So they believed what they wanted to believe because they wanted this piece for their collection. And meanwhile, the people who didn't have an attachment to the outcome, they had no skin in the game and could just really go by that feeling in their gut. They, uh, you know, I, the one guy who describes the, um, the statue was in a warehouse and somebody whisked the cover off so he could record his first impression. And he said he felt like nauseated and slightly off balance. And these are all the ways our intuition sends us uh, signals. And again, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell totally should be on everyone's reading list. Yeah. And if you're one of my members, it's on the Krav library shelf. So feel free to come check it out. It's oh. a good one. Very good. <laughs> awesome. Well, on that note, I mean, you spend a lot of time um, with your uh, divorce and mediation practice, mm -hmm. you know, talking with people, helping people through these situations. Can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of how you got started and why you have such a passion for it? Sure. Um, and again, you know, a lot of it comes from my own divorce. Uh, we always made progress in mediation, resolving conflicts, whereas family court is just really not a good place for resolving disputes. Um, for one, it's, it's way backlogged. I mean, cases can drag on for three, four years and attorneys are incredibly expensive. Uh, what I always tell people is, do you wanna pay for your kids to go to college or do you wanna pay for your attorney's kids to go to college? The choice is yours. And the reality is in a divorce agreement, or I should say a family agreement, because sometimes people aren't married, but they still have a child in common, and still need to figure out, you know, a parenting schedule and co-parenting uh, decision-making and responsibilities post-divorce or post-separation, I should say. Um, the reality is there's certain guidelines set forth by state statute in whatever state you live in that there's really only one way for a settlement to shake out. And you can go about it through mediation and just, you know, putting it together and having a mediator facilitate that conversation and figuring out what makes sense for you, your unique family whether or not that deviates from the guidelines, or you can duke it out in court, but ultimately the judge is going to determine what the outcome is going to be based on those guidelines. So it's not like, oh, I'm gonna screw over my ex, I'm gonna get this gladiator attorney. No, I don't care if you have the number one attorney in the state, you're probably not gonna get any of a different outcome unless you're buying off a judge, which I don't even know if that happens. That would, I mean, that's ridiculous. But anyways, <laughs> long story short, um, yeah, so most of my mediation clients usually are pretty agreeable. And if they have spots where they disagree, the key is finding the underlying uh, concern, principle, need, want, desire. And there's usually so much more overlap than there is, um, than there is not. For example, you know, both parties, they want, you know, the kids to grow up having loving relationships with both parents or feeling happy or being stable or whatever the case may be. And maybe they have different ideas about how to go about that. But usually there's a lot of overlap for truly high conflict people. 
you know, a spouse that just wants to punish the ex for leaving them or whatever the case may be, mediation may not work because, you know, some people will just say, will say up just because the other person says down. And when the other person says down, they'll say up just to be difficult. And, and those, you know, those parties typically don't come to mediation in the first place because they, they want the fight. And, and even if only one party wants the fight, you still can't always mediate with that type of dynamic. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, uh, that's, I feel like in those situations, it always ends a little worse off for that person who keeps up the fight than they really anticipate. They may win in the short term, whatever that means. But I always like to say, often when you win, you lose. You might win something in court that you want, whether it's, you know, not paying child support or uh, maintenance or whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, but there may be so much resentment that's created and coming to that end that now there's no hope of co-parenting peacefully. Um, you know, there's just so much that goes into it. And um, I mean, this goes back to a little bit what I was talking about legal abuse. I, you know, I, I'm in a divorced mom support group and some of these women have these horror stories where the ex is just, again, like I said, motion after motion after motion. And I mean, it can be a nightmare, which the remedy is to choose your spouse carefully in the first place, right? I mean, once you're at that point, that's just a mess. It's, I, I don't know how you fix that or get out of it. Um, but yeah, really prevention is the best medicine. <laughs> that's awesome. So speaking on that, uh, just because we are in the situation that we are in with this global mm -hmm. pandemic and all that fun stuff, I mean, it's kind of a running joke on Facebook. I'm sure you've seen all the memes and all yep, the fun stuff out here. And a handful of months, divorce attorneys are going to be, you know, elbows deep. Um, on that note, is there any tips that you can give us as far as conflict resolution at home with our spouses or significant others while we're all stuck in this together? Well, for sure, it's a pressure cooker. And I can definitely share that I've been receiving messages about, oh my God, when this is over, we've got to come and see you. You know, my sphere knows what I do. Um, but my advice is if you are in the pre-decision or pre-filing or pre-dissolution phase, but you know that it's on the horizon, right? Like most people know for months, if not years, that divorce is, or as we said before, <laughs> they actually even get married, um, that this is looming on the horizon. My best advice is to do whatever you can to end it on a high note, because that will just set the tone. Because a divorce is just a piece, if you have children in common that are under the age of majority and you're still gonna be, or even over the age of majority, you know, college graduations, grandchildren, whatever the case may be, um, a divorce is just a piece of paper that says, okay, we don't have to live in the same house anymore, we can date other people, and we, you know, can kind of, on some level, keep our money separate, but obviously if there's maintenance or child support involved, whatever. You know, a, a divorce doesn't really change anything. So don't end it on, I hate you and stopping out of the house and slamming the door. You know, do what you can to be like, okay, we came together, you know, look at it from the big picture, the, the spiritual sense, if you will. You know, we came down here on this earthly sojourn together. We came together, we, we, we had some fights, we learned some lessons. Hopefully we both grew and became stronger and got to know ourselves better throughout this process, this sort of relationship boot camp, whatever, whatever spin you want to put on it. You know, let's respectfully move on to the next chapter. Thank you. Thank each other for the journey. Um, you know, I, and by the way, I'm taking a great personal development class right now. And I just made it through the first episode, but it's all about reactive behavior. 
like reacting to a stimulus. And really, I think a lot of these um, domestic disturbances are just emotional hijacking, right? You know, it's just one person reacts and the other person reacts and it just sort of ratchets up until it's up here and people are calling 911 um, or maybe not calling 911 because they're embarrassed and they don't want the neighbors to see the police cars out in front of their house and getting in their business. But um, again, just controlling your reactions, taking a pause before you know somebody does or says something that sets you off, before you just lash back out, just pause, take a breath, and sort of see it as, and put it in a different framework. See it as a test. Do I have the ability to not you know, go into that animal response, right? Like a cat sees a mouse, they chase, it, they chase after it. The cat can't say, okay, is chasing after the mouse the right thing? No, they just do. We're not animals, we're human. We have free will. So put that free will into practice. Take a pause. You're not, you're not a puppet, you're not a robot. You have free will, you don't have to react. And then whatever you do after that, you know, maybe, maybe you still respond, maybe you still get angry, but just creating that space where a better thought can come in, you've won half the battle. Does that make sense? Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's really valuable information. Absolutely. Um, and and you it's know, okay to get space too when you're feeling flooded, um, emotionally flooded. There's a great book. Oh, I'm going to grab it. Okay. <laughs> um, it's called The Seven Principles of Making a Marriage Work. And even if you've decided you don't want your marriage to work and you do want to get divorced, um, the principles are still, some of them are still really, really, really valuable for any healthy relationship. And one of them is about flooding. And actually, most of you've read Blink, so you know Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in his book. But once somebody's heart rate goes close to 100 beats a minute, they can't listen or process anything that you're saying. And neither can you. So at that point, it's like arguing with your dog. You know, there's nothing productive that's going to come of it. So go take a walk around the block, do what you can, give yourself 20 minutes, and then come back to the discussion. That is super, super, super important. Yeah, and I think also advising, you know, whoever it is that you're in conflict with, that you need, you need to take a minute and think clearly before you can respond and continue totally. the conversation. I think it's a fair thing to do. I think it's important... Because, and you have seen this so many times where somebody gets mad, they just walk out the door and then leaves the other person with this unknown, what's going on, what's the next step already when they're elevated can sure. continue to well, cause that problem to be worse. It's disrespectful, even though you're walking to escape and sort of, you know, to practicing self-care in a way, try to take that because People do tend, there tends to be some sort of reciprocity. And if you're being respectful and treating someone with human dignity, which that's the bottom line, I don't care how much you hate somebody, you still have to treat them with human dignity. And just to say, I need a minute before you walk out, even to say, it's not you, it's me. Because it is you. I, I, I'm the one who needs to, you know, bring down my emotion. That's okay. They could be the worst person in the world, but they still deserve basic human respect and dignity. And that goes a long way. And I had a captain in the police department who always preached about that. And he was so uh, successful and respected. And it was because I don't care if somebody was the scum of the earth, child abuser, you know, the worst possible person you can think of. He always said that doesn't give me the right to treat you like shit. And, you know, he was better for it. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, my husband has a very great saying that I use all the time, right? We treat people like ladies and gentlemen, not because they are, but because we are. Oh, I love that. (laughs) It's real similar. I say, I respect people, maybe not because they deserve my respect, but because I'm a respectable person. Yep. All on, all on the same lines. And I think, you know, just to kind of bring back to your point, I think people, especially when it comes to divorce or separation, they have this preconceived notion, well, okay, I signed that paper and then I won't ever have to see that person again. But that's not true. That's not true in any way, shape or form. I mean, even if that we don't involve children, I mean, that process for a legal separation is long and drawn out and you are going to see that person. Uh, and if you have kids, I mean, you're talking about birthdays, holidays, uh, you know, their potential future marriage, you know, I mean, grandkids even for some people. So I think it's important to recognize that early, recognize this person will still be Mm -hmm. a major part of your life. And so I think if you can remember that, it allows you to proceed a little more respectfully, knowing that you have to have some form of a working relationship. That's absolutely true. And even if you know, even if you never had kids and you're going your separate ways, you know, there are people who, you know, their significant other, significant other died and they're still in their head, you know, dealing with the trauma. So, so um, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And I mean, whatever your spiritual beliefs are, just think of it as I don't want to rack up any more negative karma. Like, why, why do that? Why withdraw from your cosmic bank account by being rude? <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, oh, that's all great information. Let's, uh, let's switch gears here just a little bit and let's talk about empower self-defense real fast. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So, um, it was co-founded by myself and a fellow officer. He, he is still an active officer with the Kenosha police department. And um, I was contacted by a studio, a gym studio owner. She said, hey, why don't you come in and do a self-defense class? And I said, I'd love to, but I'm going to need a partner. So I asked around and Kevin was the one who responded and said, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. So we did it. Uh, We borrowed uh, strike shields from my kids' uh, martial arts studio. And we had a great group. We had 30 women show up. We sold out. And everybody loved it. And so I said, hey, you know, let's form a little business, you know, start an LLC, get some waivers. And um, that's just kind of what it turned into. And we when we go around to different gyms, basically pop-up events. Uh, we don't have a brick and mortar location. We come to you. We do corporate events. Um, we do private events for like realtors and title companies because you have to be super careful when you're meeting strangers in empty houses, right? Um, there's been, you know, accounts of attacks on realtors throughout the nation. Um, you know, predators are always looking for creative ways to find new victims. So, um, yeah, but it's been really fun and we've gotten a lot of positive feedback and we do like pepper spray demonstrations, not with real pepper spray. We have benign, uh, canisters, but yeah, it's just, it's really been fun. So as somebody who's also a a real estate agent, can you speak a little bit more about some of the tips and tricks that you give to those people in that world? Just because like you said, it is something that we're seeing a lot more for some odd reason nationwide. um, Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of people who are scared in that industry. Sure. So again, intuition is key, but we also want to put into place best practices and safety standards. Um, Somebody calls you. In fact, ironically, we just had a police officer in this area he is a police officer um, and he was inviting different female realtors into his home saying he wanted to sell it. And 
then making them extremely uncomfortable. So um, just because somebody calls and says, hey, I'm a cop and you can hear police radio in the background, again, you know, anybody can be potentially creepy. So always listen to that intuition. Don't just accept something at face value and say, oh, because of this, you know, because of X, Y is safe. So um, if somebody calls you and says, hey, I want to see this house, the first thing I do is I say, okay, great, but let's meet at the office. I want to go over with you what it looks like to have, you know, a buyer's agency relationship. And it's not, again, it's, again, it's just like dating. If they're not willing to meet you at the office, well, that's a huge red flag right there. Now, if for whatever reason, maybe logistically that can't work. And I don't know why that would be the case, but if for some reason working at the office is not, or meeting at the office is not feasible, I have them send me a picture of their driver's license. And the first time I did this, actually, I had a guy and yeah, he sent me a picture of his license, but his thumb was obscuring like his date of birth and part of his name. And I'm like, that's weird. Like he was very intentionally holding it in such a way that I couldn't see important information. And I said, hey, great, thank you, but I'm going to need another unobstructed picture. And he wrote me back, uh, no, I'm a terrorist. Ha ha. And I'm like, I don't know you. Woo! You're not on joking terms like this. Again, it was enough. I, you know, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I went against my better judgment. I was young. I was hungry. I needed to be met him at the house. And he walked in and immediately started ra ranting and raving about uh, how it was overpriced. Oh, this guy thinks he's going to get this price for this house. And I wouldn't pay this for this house. And sure enough, wasted my time, never ended up, you know, buying a house or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, I, again, all these best practices and, and, and I got a weird feeling about them right from the start and I should have listened to it. So um, we also have a script at our office where if I'm feeling uncomfortable, um, I can call the receptionist and I say, hey, I need the file on like one, two, three Main Street. And then she says, safe you know do you need me to call the police a series of yes or no questions um and by the way your receptionist should always know where you are showing houses you don't go in blind um it's sort of like when you're a police officer and you make a traffic stop you always need to call out and let the dispatcher know where you are because if she goes to check on you and you don't answer your radio then she can send back up to 22nd and 55th street but if you never called out the stop you're on your own girlfriend um so that's super important and a lot of the apps that we use to set up appointments for showing time for showing houses also have a safety timer and you kind of put your thumb on it. And then if that gets released, then uh, the police are notified with your location. So it's called Forewarn actually. And that's nationwide, I believe. Forewarn is the app. So Wonderful. definitely recommend that all realtors download that on their phone. Excellent, excellent. I think that's all fantastic information. Um, you know, with, with all of this, I mean, there, you've just given us so much information today and so much, I think, to chew on that um, I think uh, I think this is going to have a really positive outcome for those people who are listening to it. You've given us some good tips and tricks to uh, continue to educate ourselves. Um, for those people who are interested in learning more about what you do and who you are, where can they find that information? Well, I'm very active on social media. So Anne, Anne Levenstein on Facebook, uh, A-N-N-E. And then the last name is L-E-V-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Um, so I have, we have our Facebook page, Empower Self-Defense LLC. We're also on Instagram, Empower Self-Defense. We also have a website that's EmpowerSelfDeaf.com. 
uh, Empower Self-Defense was already taken. So EmpowerSelfDef.com. Um, and yeah, I'm super easy to find. You know, I'm a realtor. So you Google my name, my cell phone number will pop up and give me a call. If you are a realtor, I would highly suggest following her page because the types of memes and information she puts out is so absolutely hilarious and fun and engaging. I think a lot of people can learn from your style of marketing. Well, thank you. I think that's super important because what I tell other realtors or people who are new to the business is there is a million other people out there who can do what you can do. You, this is not a niche, 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 I don't know how to pronounce it, niche market um, or skill. Uh, the, you know, all realtors are trained exactly the same way. We all have access to exactly the same information. If you want to set yourself, set yourself apart, be yourself and find a way. And humor is a great way to engage people. And it reminds people that you're out there. It reminds people that you do what you do. If you're a realtor, you know, inevitably you're going to have this conversation with a friend and they're going to be like, Oh, I just listed my house for sale. And you're going to be like, Oh my gosh, didn't you remember? I'm a realtor. Why didn't you call me? Oh, I forgot. Like you always have to remind people what you do. And again, humor is a great way to do that because it just, it connects people. Oh, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I, I, yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll have more interviews in the future. Um, and uh, again, I will list all the information down below this so that you can follow on social media and reach out if you have any questions. If you're one of our members or one of our listeners, stay tuned. We've got more interviews coming for you. So have a good day. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll all talk soon. <laughs>